1: I'm David Ellicou, and this is The Knowledge. A place to consider big and emerging ideas for anyone obsessed with learning more and living better. Each week, I'll share what I'm learning and speak to a variety of guests to hear what they've learned about navigating the world around us. This week, I'm sharing the first of two parts of my incredible conversation with author and poet JJ Böhler. We had an incredible conversation about how he went from being a good writer to a published author, as well as his experiences grappling with a multinational identity, his views on social justice and masculinity within the black community, and how all of these topics influence him to write. If you love this episode, please do share it with a friend and don't forget to leave a review. You'll probably also love my weekly essays that I write in my newsletter that you can find at the knowledge.substack.com. As I was saying before, I've, I've really wanted to chat to you for a while, but then I know on Twitter we're having this discussion or you were sharing some thoughts, which I found really interesting just around masculinity, the black community, the intersection between the two. And it was making me think a lot about, there's just so much around that as well. And I think even some aspects Mm. of that tie into things that I know that you've written about in your work in the past as well. And also something I really wanted to touch on is just this idea of identity in general, because I think this really factors in to how we navigate society and how we navigate interactions with each other, whether that's in like relationships, yeah. whether that's, you know, it manifests in different ways. I guess to start awesome. with, you are a writer for anyone that doesn't know you and hasn't come across your work. I mean, what, how did you get into writing and how did you know? Cause I think this is a, two part question and it's very important one like when did you know that this is something you want to do and then also when did you realize that you were Mm. good at it because i think there's a lot of people that maybe they want to write or they enjoy writing but knowing that you actually have a skill and this is your this is your craft when when was that for you
3: yeah um okay so to answer the last last question first so when did i know i don't know man like (sighs) I think it was when I signed with an agent. When I was like, "Oh, I might be all right." Like, do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> like, just about. <laughs> just like even now, I'm like, honestly, even now, I'm like, I don't know, man. But when you've got someone else saying, "Oh, we want you to write this thing," or like, "Here, we'll pay you," you're like, "All right, I must be good." Then let me do it, innit? it. Like, but I think when I first started writing, it was just enjoyment. I just really enjoyed it. I enjoyed going to open mic, like I enjoyed writing. I enjoyed going to open mics, reading poems. Like I would literally do that like weekly when I first started out, do you know what I mean? Different spaces, just go and listen, not just to read or whatever, Mm -hmm. but just to listen to other people. Like I even, you know, obviously pre-lockdown, but even now um, I still try and do that as much as I can. And I don't know if, like, that feeling of... I have this philosophy of the moment that you think you're good... Like, you have to have a certain level of self-confidence, right? Or self-belief. But the moment that you think you're good, like, is the moment that you start to relax and lose it, you know? Like, and so for me, I try not to think so much about how good I am or anything like that. I just think about, can I do it? Can I write this book? Can I write this poem? Can I you know, write this article, whatever it is. And then if I can just to do that, but I, I don't really like to think of, oh, I'm good. I mean, you know, we're all, we're human beings. So there definitely are moments where I've written something. I'm like, no, nah, I'm a good writer. <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm good, but um, yeah. that's just the ego talking, you know? Um, and I try to stay away from that as much as possible. But um, yeah, to answer your first question, like how I got into writing was purely accidental. You know, like I just found for me that like my main thing was basketball. And then um, when that wasn't really a pathway anymore, I just needed something else to put my energy towards. And it just so helped that writing was something that I was able to do and was also very therapeutic for me. Like it brought me into a new kind of space, meeting different people and all of that kind of stuff and helped me to understand myself. And I just kind of kept going a bit further each time. Do you know what I mean? Like little writing here, then open mics there, then little like blog here. And it was all just random, like just, and then, you know, Twitter kind of happened and i would just tweet random thoughts and whatever. And it all just kind of like snowballed. You know, even now it still feels like a snowballing kind of Mm. thing just from one thing to another to another. But I'm very lucky now to have reached a stage like in the last few years where it's a career for me, you know. Um, But yeah, yeah, I can't ever say that I planned this route or predicted or was like, this is what I'm gonna do, and you know, some people say like, yeah, in my head, this is what I'm gonna do, and I'm gonna do it. You know, I sent my, I manifested, bro. yeah, <laughs> 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 like, yeah. <laughs> okay, good for you. For me, I just enjoyed writing. I put my passion to it, and then I just followed. And then when the opportunities just came, like I aligned myself with what I thought I could do. You know, what, what felt true to my values and who I am. And so if those opportunities didn't come, would I still be writing? Yeah, like I just wouldn't be, you know, sharing with the
1: world in the same way. So, yeah. I hear that. Do you feel like there was ever maybe a tipping point in when it was going from, okay, this is something I'm purely just doing, because I love it. And this is you pouring Mm -hmm. yourself out into your work. And then now suddenly you have an audience that is receptive of, and wants more of that work. Mm -hmm. So I had a couple of like,
3: so early on I self, I self published some books, right. And that was more just me trying to experiment and, you know, people were like, Oh, you know, enjoying your work, can read anything whatever. And I was like, you know what, let me just put something together and see um, if anyone will buy it. But like, a it was mad expensive. B I didn't make any money. Like I lost money. <laughs> do you know what I mean? We <laughs> of time and labor costs and all that. Yeah. Bro, like, mate, I don't know. I probably sold a hundred self-published books. Like, do you know what I mean? It was it was not lucrative. Like it was not, never mind lucrative. It didn't even, I didn't even break even. But (laughs) that wasn't the point. Like, you know, it was nice to have those connections and nice to have things on paper and so forth. But I think it was at maybe the point of, like I mentioned earlier when I signed with my agent, but actually prior to that, so I was working in a job that I got really, really frustrated and basically made me incredibly miserable. And then I was just like, I had that, I, I had the opportunity to leave right and i i plan like i basically planned to quit the job for about a year and i was like i need like this environment is depressing me like i'm just not able to be comfortable here and, and be who i am and be true to myself and my values and all of this and the life that i want to want to live but i don't know what's next and so i need to find myself and so i don't want to idealize this whole quit your job thing because like it took me the whole year to save up a decent amount of money. But then also I was still living incredibly yeah. broke for like the next year two, maybe two, three years after that. Like, do you know what I mean? And I didn't have children and stuff like that. And I can move back to my parents. And, you know, like, and this is like 30 years old and stuff. So, like, there were definitely sacrifices that I had to make. But I think it was at that point where I was like, well, I really, I don't know what I want to do with my life, but I just really enjoy writing. Right. I know that that makes me happy. So let me try that. Yeah. And then if nothing comes of it, which is also fine, like at least I know that for that period of time, I was like happy, you know? Um, and then actually what was really interesting was when I started, when I had all this time to write, I was like, I don't know about this writing thing, you know, I don't really like writing all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I was like, right, every day. From morning till night? I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, mm. You know, so I, I found that actually some people are all or nothing. You know, they do. They put all their energy into one thing and that's it. And sometimes that's what people expect. But actually, it's very good to also be into several things. So I thought, oh, okay, I can kind of mix up my passions and be interested in different things. And I could still work a full-time job, which I do now. And then, right... Um, and then you know, do coaching and basketball and whatever, and just balance it up. But I think it was actually that, basically, me trying to find myself made me realize what I do love and how much I love it. You know, and there's some very kind of purist mm. writers out there who say, "Oh, you know, I breathe writing." And I'm like, bro, I don't breathe writing. I breathe air. Like, and I eat food. I don't eat writing. Like, and I yeah. love writing, but like, I also like to leave it alone. You know, so yeah, I think in a long, in a roundabout way of answering your question, it was just kind of, yeah, I don't know, a general kind of approach really, I guess.
1: It's an interesting point you make with um, having so much time to do the writing, because I mean, I, I enjoy writing myself and I've always written... Um, mm-hmm. more so fiction. Like, I think that's what I enjoy writing more and also reading, but I do yeah. write nonfiction, like I write my newsletter things like that. Um, mm-hmm. and it's funny because I remember, um, you know, I've been trying to write literally for the last like five, six years, mostly just like mm-hmm. fiction stuff. But, and I think that's been a bit better, even though what I find hard is actually finishing the things that I start writing. Mm-hmm. But I remember mm-hmm. there was a year yeah. where I was just not employed and I was just not doing anything. And I was like, boom, this is the year I'm going to have so much time. I'm going to get all this writing done. I'm going to start and finish like a whole novel. I wrote almost nothing. <laughs> it was so hard. <laughs> Sitting down every day and actually like forcing yourself to try and write. I feel like that was really hard. Yeah. And the only time, so I do this yearly yeah. thing. I think you might've heard of it called uh, NaNoWriMo, National November Writing Month. Yeah, yeah. It's and- insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I find people like, what? Yeah, yeah. But it's a way to to force you to sit down because otherwise, I mean, I'm getting better now, particularly writing a a newsletter that's weekly forces me into a regular habit of having to Mm -hmm. write every day. So I think maybe I'm better equipped now. But I know before Mm -hmm. it was just really Mm -hmm. hard. You feel like you're creatively blocked because you can't just sit down and make yourself write and actually make the writing good. And I think maybe that's part of what the blocker was, is realizing that. You know what maybe a lot of the writing is going to be rubbish and then eventually the more you write then it will be better but yeah yeah, the first time i finished NaNoWriMo was actually when i went back to working full-time i was now working in a law firm i had less time than i'd ever Mm. had before but using Mm -hmm. the small scraps of time that i had i think that was almost Mm -hmm. freeing in a way to being able to just like focus Mm -hmm. my creative energy on, Mm on that writing Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's something, especially with like the working kind of full time
3: or the nine to five thing. Like some artists are like, oh no, I can't do it, whatever. Like I've tried to do the whole freelance artist thing. I don't enjoy it. Like I, I very much like that structure of like, you know, like nine to five and you know, you have to be at the office or be at the desk or whatever, like at a certain time and you clock off at a certain time and you know, that order and that routine and that structure, I just apply it to my writing. So I found that you know, what's the point of having like 10 hours of free time if I only spend two hours of that writing and the rest of the time I'm demotivated or I haven't got enough structure or whatever. So I could just, what I found was easier for me is like, I got the structure at nine to five. I wake up early in the morning, wake up at six or six, 30, 7 I write for an hour, go about my day, whatever, come back, write for an hour in the evening that's the same amount of time that I would have probably been like used for writing anyway, you know, and I feel much better cause I'm using my time effectively. So I really think like, you know, especially in terms of writing, it's really just about breaking it into, breaking it down into small chunks and just trying to endure. And so, yeah, my kind of thing is just write 500 words a day or between 250 to 500 words a day you know, and, and you'll be good. Like eventually you'll have
1: something and that's it. Yeah. I love that. So one thing I really wanted to ask you was the extent to which, or at least how you feel like your background influences your writing and your craft, because I know mm-hmm. obviously you have your debut novel, No Place to Call Home. You've now written Mask Off as well. Um, and I know you had the three poetry collections before that. And I'm really interested mm-hmm. in, yeah, just how your background and who you are as a person influences your writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think
3: it's a massive influence, you know, being, uh, and when I say background, like it's a kind of m- multiplicity of identities. Like I don't just mean mm-hmm. it in terms of my Congolese identity or African identity or black identity. Um, I It's a combination of those, yes, but also my own kind of intricate, personal, philosophical or spiritual beliefs as well. Like I think those things really influence me, probably more than any other aspect of my identity. Do you know what I mean? And so for me, I take those things Mm -hmm. really, really seriously. So I do think that in terms of writing, when I do write, I do kind of see as a deeper sacrifice and a deeper privilege as well considering that, like, I'm two generations removed from illiteracy, you know, like my my grandparents Ooh. were illiterate. Like, that's not that <laughs> far away, you know? And so being yeah. able to write, for me, I think at this time, like, is a real kind of real privilege, you know, and a real spiritual exercise because we're able to keep stories alive that you know had been erased or suppressed for so long and so i really feel like a sense of purpose so even if it's being read by everyone or if it's just for my own personal records or whatever it is like i really think that and the, the act of like writing is archiving to a certain degree as well. And so we're keeping stories, we're keeping our histories alive. And that's mm. like so incredibly important to me. And all of that ties into like who I am and my background and my identity as well, you know?
1: Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And I think it's a big question as well, what you were saying in terms of how your philosophical identity ties into maybe your cultural background as well. Cause I think Mm -hmm. that's something I feel like a lot of young people, particularly using the UK as we're here, as an example, where Mm -hmm. people have this duality of either where they are from or where their parents are from and being Mm -hmm. able to find like who you are within that. And then also having multiple intersections that come off from that. Maybe you're part of the LGBT community. Maybe you're also a woman. Maybe you're also, you know, there's, there's other aspects of that. And when you're looking historically, how does that all fit in, into you crafting who you are and how you understand your place in society? I really love what you were saying about identity and how there's this interplay between maybe your cultural identity and your philosophical identity and the ideas that you embrace and the ideas that you adapt. But also I know that there's mm-hmm. nuances there because some of that philosophy might differ where, b- between if you embrace more of an African identity versus more of a Western mm-hmm. identity and, oh, and that can play out in, in different ways. And I know I actually have your book here. I, I promise it's it's funny because it wasn't a prop because I brought it out so that I could, <laughs> I could look back over it. Cause I I've had it for a while. Um, and yeah, you know, it, it was, it's a really interesting book for me. And I think some of the topics it touched upon resonated with me in a very same way that, um, another book resonated with me, which is uh half a yellow sun. And the reason being, because obviously what? like my parents, I don't know if you know, but I'm Nigerian, but I'm, Ibra mm-hmm. and I'm from Asaba, And so me being here mm-hmm. is largely because my parents slash grandparents came here. Well, my grandparents during the Biafra war. And so obviously there's a mm-hmm. whole story with that, but ironically, I mean, my dad went back later on and then, so I'm now kind of like, I'm still a first generation immigrant, but kind of second generation as well. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that I've always mm-hmm. struggled with, uh, particularly earlier in my life is deciding what identity and what part of this whole complex thing that you embrace because we had a civil war the reason that we had Mm. the issues that we had and me coming here is because obviously we were on the losing side of that civil war where we were you know saying that we're biafra and there's a massacre Mm -hmm, in my hometown mm -hmm. and when i look at the history because obviously Mm -hmm. i wasn't there but when i'm looking at history i'm seeing names of like relatives and people that have my name and So then it's like okay even Mm -hmm. when i'm saying i'm nigerian you know really is it that i'm nigerian Mm -hmm. or do i feel a stronger identity with maybe biafra or being ibra and then beyond that now the next level is now that i've come to the uk now it's like Mm -hmm. am i british or am i still nigerian because i wasn't even born here Mm -hmm. but i also recognize Mm -hmm. that Um, and I wonder if you could speak to this to an extent, but I've definitely, you know, there's, there's privileges of being here, me doing all the things I'm doing, all the jobs that I've had, me being able to run businesses, me being able to do this, this has all come because I'm here and i know Mm -hmm. particularly with black people when you see people get some uh, notoriety Mm -hmm. there's always those people that are like oh you should be grateful to be here you can't be talking about the uk like this and that you can't be saying all these things and one thing that i've noticed for myself is the duality between okay i actually do recognize that i have cousins that are in the village that i've never even been to lagos let alone come into london but at the same Mm -hmm. time the uk Mm -hmm. was also the people that were funding the civil war in my country. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't even be here if you guys weren't doing all of that. And so (laughs) it's like, you've created the circumstances where I'm here now. Um, and yeah, I I wonder like how much of that resonates with you as well.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because a lot of it is politics of nationality, politics of border politics, um, politics of ethnicity, Um, as well. And all of those, at the same time, are very important, but also very arbitrary, and always shifting. Like, and so um, I'll use my own example in terms of like Congo, because that's the situation I come from. Um, So we have Democratic Republic of Congo, but then we also have the Republic of Congo. Uh, So DR Congo, DRC, we were colonised by Belgium, Um, Republic of Congo was colonised by France the amount of times, um, that there's like political clashes between the two or any kind of surrounding, uh, neighboring, um, countries, all of, all of the borders are drawn up by colonialism. like. Right? And so my thing is, is like, yeah, if I show national pride, right. In terms of being Congolese, especially towards or against my other African brothers and sisters. That's also reinforcing the same colonial, like, oppression that was imposed on us. Like, do you know what I mean? Because how proudly Congolese mm-hmm. can I really be before it borders into essentially Euro patriarchal submission? Like, saying yes, these guys made us who we are. So at the same time, I feel Congolese, but then also at the same time, I'm like, nah, I don't. I don't agree with these borders. Um. And you know, it's the same time I feel like with um with ethnicity, because it's like it's important to recognize my ancestral lineage and to and to uphold that. But at the same time, for me, I don't we we often tend to create hierarchies based on power and influence and politics. And those are also reinforcing the same boundaries and hierarchies that are imposed on us, because if I as a con- so there's four main ethnic groups in Congo, um, the uh, Bangala, or, uh, the Swahili, the Muluba, and the Kikongo. So if, and, you know, each has their own version of whichever hierarchy goes at the top or at the bottom, and everyone always thinks it's their own, right? <laughs> Which is like, come on. Um, yeah. But at the same time, like in that country, in our country, if we are buying into that, then we're also buying into the racial hierarchies that puts the white man, quote unquote, at the top of all of that, right? And so my thing is, is like we have to, like, we have to be really careful in what we buy into and what we believe to be true, and look at things through a critical and historical lens, you know. And I where 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 conflict and war and trauma is involved as well. I think it's really, really important for people to try to have a compassionate view and something that takes all things into consideration and moves accordingly. Because obviously for yourself as a, uh, uh, as a Nibbo man um, and a descendant of you know, the legacies of like the Biafra war, someone saying to you that your ethnicity isn't important is essentially erasure right? And so when you've gone through that history of erasure, Mm. it's really important to hold on to that. But then at the same time, it's like to what extent do we hold on to something and then can it spill over into reinforcing another hierarchy? You know, Mm. and those are sometimes things that are beyond our personal control, you know, or beyond our familial control. And, you know, I say all of that to say this, it's hella complicated. Mm. You know, (laughs) like do I have the answer? Yeah. I don't know. I can only go with how I feel. And so to bring that back to the book, like no place to call home, I'm like I'm looking at it like, okay, now we add the, the nuance of being, you know, first generation, second generation children in the diaspora, in the UK, in the US, in France, wherever, countries that essentially don't want us to be there, where we're the burdens of that country for whatever reasons, although they exploit our countries. Like, to what extent can we claim this land as ours. you know when we're, we're not we're not at home here and so i I feel very lucky in that aspect because uh, it's like i wasn't really brought up to to claim the uk like i don't consider myself british um i've never self-identified as british i call myself i'm, I'm a black londoner like and if i move to manchester i'll be i'll be a okay black mancunian like i'm the i'm my race and my locality type of thing, if that makes sense. You know, the only time I claim kind of British is when my passport is. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) When I'm on the border and I'm trying to stay here, like, you know. But other than that, I have no claims to the state. Um, And I say the same, you know, in Congo, uh, uh, like, in terms of the state. How can I say that the Congolese state represents me when, our leaders have been pillaging the country for billions squandering wealth and leaving everyone in abso- like abject poverty how can i say that that's my country that's yeah. not something to be proud of and so yeah it, i mean it's all very nuanced and complicated man but i do think that you have to make your own decision i can't speak of i can't speak for and like on behalf of anyone else But I do think that you have to make your own decision that's comfortable for you, you know, and that aligns with your legacy and with your identities. And it's actually like informed, man, because it's complicated.
1: We'll be right back after this break.
0: I often find out the hard way that all IPAs are not created equal. Some are hot bombs that forget about flavor. Others only taste good if you drink them with a heavy meal. Fortunately, Founders Brewing Company has found a way to enjoy an IPA anytime and at any occasion with their all-day IPA. You can taste the hops, of course, but it's the complex array of malts and grains that make all-day IPA a beer that will grab your attention. Whether you're relaxing after a long day at work or hanging outside with your friends, all-day IPA will become one of your favorites. It's one reason why Founders is in the top 10 of the nation's craft breweries and a staple in my fridge. When you taste all-day IPA, you'll understand how they got there. Look for Founders in your favorite beer store or check out their full line of beer and now hard seltzers, too, at FoundersBrewing.com. Founders Brewing Company, born and brewed in Michigan since 1997. Circle K is America's thirst stop. And Dave's,
2: especially when Dave needs refreshments for family movie night. So Dave heads straight to Circle K, where he grabs icy Polar Pop cups and frosters for the kids and chilled beer for the grown-ups. Enjoy family movie night, Dave. We'll be here for you all summer long. And right now at Circle K, score with 28-ounce Gatorade. Any flavor, three for $5. So make us your first stop. Circle K, America's thirst stop.
3: This country doesn't love us. Five years ago, like back in the day, it's mad. Like five years ago, I used to people say to people, "I'm not from Britain." Like you know, especially when this book came out. Sorry, I'm going on a little bit, but when this book came out, people mm. would introduce oh, me God. as like the 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 black British author, and I would inter like interrupt them and be like, oh, "I'm not British," like <laughs> do you know what I mean, like, and I would <laughs> that would like yeah. I was really. Like insistent on that, and that would kind of make people feel uncomfortable. Like, no, but you are British, but uh, but uh, no, I'm not British, I speak English, and that's because of colonialism. I speak French, that's because of colonialism, and I'm here in the UK, like, and that's because of colonialism. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't, it's, it's, it's a difficult, it's a nuanced conversation, not even necessarily difficult, but nuanced. And so, this whole Idea of like no place to call home is just about how, like, the placelessness of this thing
1: of belonging and identity and how it's ever shifting, really. Yeah, there's so many things that you said that I resonate with completely. And it's a really interesting, it's hard. And maybe this ties into the next part because, like you say, I think the part, the times when I choose to embrace the Britishness is now when it's going to benefit me and I'm going to get something out of it. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting tie. To obviously have a second book now, which is Muskoff, And I know on Twitter we we were having this conversation about how, I think you were saying, you have a lot of these discussions about masculinity, um, particularly when it's within the black community and it's mostly women that turn up or Mm -hmm. maybe black men are Mm -hmm. not um, interacting with a lot of that material in the same way. And we can unpack that, we can get into that. But the one part that I was thinking about connecting is the fact that I think part of it is, As black people, we are not the dominant Mm. people in this society, being here Mm -hmm. in the UK in the West. But Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when it comes to patriarchy and when it comes to, you know, other mechanisms within society, there are things that we do benefit Mm -hmm. from. And I do think that there's an extent Mm -hmm. to which sometimes we claim the bits that benefit us. So now, so when it's about race, oh, we're all subjugated equally. You know, let's all fight together. Let's all, we're all mm-hmm. on the same place. But then sometimes, mm-hmm. like, at least from what I see, when it comes to gender, it's now like, oh, let's, uh, <laughs> let's do this a bit differently. <laughs> you know, if it's going to benefit me, my ears pick up, I'm going to be interested. If it's not benefiting me, I'm just going to sit yeah, here. You yeah, guys yeah. go do your thing. I'll support you from, from the back. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic as well.
2: Mm.
3: I mean, it just goes to show really, like, when we speak about social justice, the fact is, most people are interested in the social justice issue that most affects them. Right? And I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong. You know, it's understandable, because, you know, if you have disability issues, and that's the dominant factor in how you engage with society then it's your prerogative to be concerned about making a change for that, right? And so if you think about in terms of race, in terms of gender, whatever it is, and so as black men, we sit at that intersection of being privileged in terms of our, our gender as men, but being oppressed in terms of our race as black people. And so, you know, yeah. the, the old adage that says, like, if you're in a position of privilege, equality can feel like oppression – and so the same reservation or fear that white people have about you know racial equality is the same fear or reservation that men that we men have we particularly straight men have um about gender equality because we feel like it's 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 going to attack us you know we feel like it's going to remove us from the perceived privileges that we're supposed to have but the thing that's different about Gender equality is—it's—it's it's a double-edged sword, and it's even funny, right? Because in, to a certain degree, like even racial inequality is as well, because racial inequality doesn't benefit the majority of white people in the way that they think it benefits them. You know, like Trump becoming hmm. president made the average white American a lot poorer than when Obama was president. Yeah. You know what I mean, like. The past 10 years of a conservative government in the UK has systematically robbed, like, white English people of any kind of, like, security and wealth and so forth that even, like, they had prior to it. And they're blaming this stuff on immigration, but really it's, you know, you're supposedly... Like, it's, it's your government, you know, and this government is supposed to be for you, but <laughs> they're not. And so this is the thing with us now. It's like, okay, we have to be concerned about black issues. And I think as men, like our primary issues are black male issues, right? Our issues in terms of like our racial equality, because that's the thing that most affects us. But if we look about it, if we think about it in terms of gender, also there's many things that affects us in terms of like our gender discrimination now it's about whether or not we are aware of those things that affect us like if we look at hyper masculinity and aggression and representation of black men in the mainstream media or in sports in terms of like how black men are sexualized like we don't talk about the sexualization of black men and i say this this is something that i'm just like wow you know mm-hmm. i've never seen a conversation because like i really it been had on twitter because you look at the images of black men that are shared, and it's always these topless, oily dons, like you know, who go gym twenty four seven or whatever, <laughs> whatever. Like, yeah, and I'm like, hmm. And then whenever they're talking about a certain type of black man, the Daniel Kaluuya's, the you know, um, the 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 um, John Boyega's, and so forth, I'm hearing language like, ah. Did someone say train, choo-choo, like all of this kind of stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> and yeah. and and John Boyega mm. or Daniel Fowler aren't even, don't even sexualize themselves. They're not even like that way. They don't even come across that way. Do you know what I mean? They don't have any references to that. Yeah. So the fact that that's what your reference point is for showing appreciation towards black men, you know, it says a lot about the way that society sexualizes black men and we normalize that sexualization. But also, it says a lot about us as black men and what we accept. Do you know what I mean? Because as men, you know, we think any kind of male mm-hmm. attention is good. And so we feel validated by if someone finds us, se- women are supposed to find you sexy and it's a status booster, right? But at the same time, we don't really recognize when we're being sexualized because we see that sexualization to our benefit because the, the ultimate goal is sex. Right. So we actually think we are the ones in power, but we're being disempowered, if that makes sense. But then it's like certain guys will be like, Yeah, but who cares if I get to have sex? And I'm like, bro, like the bigger thing is your humanity. Like you're not a walking dildo. Like, does someone actually care about you? You know, because that's is that's what is actually at the core of it. And, you know, it's difficult to allow someone to really care about you when you don't really care about yourself. You know. And I think about, like, mm. how for black men, how, since what ages, since the such young ages have been sexualized into violence and aggression? Do you know what I mean? Whether it's like the Mandingo effect and all of that. Like, it's been happening for years. So as an adult, you step into it and you think it's your own agency, but you're actually just reinforcing a pre-ascribed role of what society thinks you should do and how you should be. And it's not something that's really interrogated, like, and and I and I say this as like I I like to use the example of Russell Wilson and Future as an example, right? In terms of like the 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 binary and the contradictions, and also just like the 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 sheer ridiculousness of it all, right? So you put Future there, you know, mm. Toxic Man, multiple. Uh, children by multiple women like he's rich materialistic drug habits all of this absolute madness you put and he's very unathletic let's say right in comparison to the person who I'm going to mention which is Russell Wilson right Who's literally a pro athlete he's like six foot five 250 pounds like he can bench press all of this kind of stuff but he loves his wife Ciara he's a wonderful father father to adopt his son like he's you know, a deeply grounded person who has values and so forth. And between them two, Future is seen as being, like, the example of what a man should be. And Russell Wilson is seen as mm-hmm. being, like, oh, a simp or weak. Especially when people say Russell Wilson is weak. I'm like, bro, he's six foot five. Like, he will literally bench press you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So these... And you got to think about what kind of examples that we've been given as uh, black people in our communities, right? And whether or not it advances us or it takes us, you know, it helps to actually develop us as a people or whether it's, like, reinforcing stigma or stereotype, you know? And there's only so much you can reclaim. Like, I, I don't really think you can reclaim certain stereotypes or you can reclaim certain... Whether it's like behaviours or, or stigmas, without the power to self-determine, like do you know what I mean? I can like let's say like the the example of the N word, like I can reclaim the N word and call my boys it all the time, like and it has a different meaning and say that I've reclaimed it, but unless I have systematic privilege to be able to change how that how my destiny moves forward and, self-determ- and self-determine and self like, whether or not certain things influence whether I get a job or not, or what kind of economic stance I have, that reclamation doesn't really mean anything. Do you know what I mean? And so I just, I, mm-hmm. I, I think, like, the psychology yeah. of all, like, what are we really trying to do? It's that, like, so I'm rambling now, but, like, it's kind of like the whole Kanye, like, you know, Kanye West is a brilliant example of this. When he, you know, he first raps about, we're trying to buy back our 40 acres, all right? So this whole materialism thing, and we're just trying to be seen as human and trying to self determine and so forth. And then he goes on his mad example to reach like this apex of wealth with this family that's like, you know, basically whiteness on steroids, all right? And he, and look where it gets him. Like, even the economic. Even yeah. our c- economic wealth that we're all kind of like seem to be fighting for doesn't liberate you in the, in the way that you think it does. It's about that that collective power and that collective self determination. And so, I really just think that like we have to have a bit more of a critical approach about well, what stigmas, what stereotypes, what things are we trying to reclaim, what behaviors, what are we doing, and is it really liberating us, or is it really taking, uh, or, or is it actually taking away from us? who we are. And a lot of people don't ask that question. Themselves. They just think like, what can I do for me? You know, it's almost like a really selfish approach.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, but yeah, man, I don't know. I could, I thought this conversation, man, I swear <laughs> I've gone into a conversation for a long time. I really <laughs> want to <laughs> write a book specifically yeah. on black masculinity, but there's some, um, there's some more books coming out by other writers on that issue, um, that I've been told about. So hopefully we'll we'll get to open up
1: like a conversation a bit more. Okay, sweet. I have so many questions from everything you just said, (laughs) I'll try and break it down, but maybe, okay, on the black masculinity point, what you pointed out with the future and Russell Wilson thing, I think is so interesting because particularly when you take it back to what you were saying about like the Mandingo effect and, and the hypersexualization of black men, it's so interesting that Russell Wilson as a, as an archetype, personality Mm -hmm. aside in terms of his body, in terms of his height, in terms of all of those other things in any other context, he would be the one that people would be looking at. He would be the bigger example right. of, wow, look at this black man. He's so strong. He's this, he's that. He's a supreme mm-hmm. athlete. One of the best athletes in the world does all of this stuff. What do you think it is about right. that particular situation that then makes people say, oh, no, he now he's weak because... Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to think of what else he's done apart from love his wife and take care of his family and like he hasn't come out and done anything weird he's just a a family Mm -hmm. man and he he doesn't even have much of a social Mm -hmm. media personality outside of that it's his wife posting stuff he just Mm -hmm. happens to be around and Mm -hmm. so I find it really interesting how Mm -hmm. someone that externally would be someone that Mm -hmm. You would think people look to and see as an icon, as someone that you'd want to be like, as someone you'd want to emulate when they Mm -hmm. exhibit some of these attributes. Now he's the weak one. The other guy, Mm -hmm. I'm not even exactly Mm -hmm. sure how tall future is, but he's not running around bench pressing, throwing, (laughs) you know. Hail Mary passes. He's not doing any of those things, but Mm -hmm. now he's the one that Mm -hmm. is looked at as iconic when he has like seven kids by Mm -hmm. six different women and is not around any of them. And I'm not saying that obviously he makes music, which is cool, but I I struggle to think of like, what else is there apart from this imbalance that makes this something to emulate and this something that's seen as weak?
3: And you know, I, I really think like,
1: the issue
3: also, like we have, if we look at the past 20, 30 years um, and the direction that society has gone in, like capitalism and capitalism, materialism and individualism has skyrocketed, right? So the behaviors and traits that are seen as being like inherently of those things. And now normalized, right? And to the point, point, not even normalized, but glorified even. Um, prior to that, you almost, like it was still a patriarchal society, but there was almost this kind of like faux nobility to it, you know? Like in a sense of like, you had men like, you know, uh, you were seen as a a real man if you took care of your family, you know, and all of those kind of things, like you're noble in that sense. Even though like a lot of these guys were still doing dirt anyway, mm-hmm. But like on the surface, that was the image that yeah. they wanted to present, right? Yeah. And now, like even that presentation of taking care of your family and so forth and so forth, it's not even seen as being a real man. Like it's like who who has the most money, who has uh, and not even the most money, but who's who? See, this is the difference: is what you do with your money. Like, are you materialistic? Are you flashy and so forth? Because. Mm-hmm. Listen, Russell Wilson makes as much money as Future, if not more. Like, I know them NFL players are paid, yeah. like, <laughs> you know what I mean? And he's going to be paid for a long time. So you can't even make those comparisons, but it's about what they do with their money and the way that they carry themselves. And, you know, it's it's insane, like, because it reinforces these materialistic values and stuff. And you, what you have is you have... The, in, like that kind of materialistic representation, the future-esque type of person has an impact on the younger generation. So many of them, so many young people, teenagers, Gen Z, whatever you want to call them, now see someone like Future as the person to aspire to. will see that lifestyle as the lifestyle to aspire to. And what you're going to get, which also is, is something that, I feel like there's a conversation that's to be had this idea of like prolonged adolescence, you know, it's something I really want to explore more in that the way that these lifestyles are pushing us towards, it's actually infantilizing us. So keeping us in a state of like mm. basic repetitive cycles where we live to only satisfy our most immediate basic urges of whether it's sex or, you know, meaningless casual relationships or Um, just spending money on frivolous things or frivolous lifestyles that actually don't build us, don't transcend us from one stage to another, to another, to another. Do you know what I mean? And this is the thing, right? Pandemic is really, really interesting because... So, the amount of tweets that I saw where everyone was like, I have no more talking stages in me left, right? Next person meet me at the altar (laughs) like and i get it and i get it right because we really want that intimacy and then we we and it's good it's natural to we're human beings that we crave it and that's fine i do as well right and so to see that and then contrast that with the first kind of tweets when everyone when there was a news uh of Things opening up again, June 21st. Everyone's like, I belong to the streets. (laughs) Like, hold on. You were just saying that you're ready for the altar. Like, what's going on? You know? So I think people don't Mm -hmm. really like actually critically think about what their processes are, like what's actually influencing them internally. And I feel like there's a lot of internal conflicts between us wanting to live a unburdened life. And whether that's in terms of like material wealth or whether that's in terms of like relationships or responsibilities, but us also wanting to be cared for, like those things are, those things are in conflict. And, Mm -hmm. and if we look at the system that we live in, in terms of like it being a capitalist materialist system, being cared for and caring for someone is at odds with that, you know? So, in a capitalist system, relationships become reduced to basic transactions, you know, transactions of the body and transactions of of of, of wealth, you know, and sex, and and, and and that's it, really. So it's like, okay, you know, 19 years old, cool. Early 20s, all right, cool. Mid-20s, it's kind of pushing on. 30s, you're like, how sustainable is this lifestyle, bro? Like, you've got a bad back and knees, and you're still trying to bust down the club every night, like, I don't know, 30, 35, 40, how sustainable is this? And you know what? Just to kind of add a little story to that, yeah? Like, I remember one time, and this is this was what really made me check myself um, and think, hmm, like, who do I want to be? When um, a few years back, out with some friends or whatever, and one of my friends had invited one of his guys this guy came down, you know, one of them guys who was always on a hype, yeah, like, Friday night, you know, we're trying to hit the town, yeah, yeah, hard working week, yeah, let's go, where the girls were, there were some girls, and we were like, all right, cool, but bro, calm down, like, you know, them guys were just a bit too on it, like, and then you're like, yeah, like, yeah. you know, those girls, but, like, <laughs> relax, like, you know what I mean, like, and so I remember we were going out, we were kind of bar hopping, and then we went to one bar. And they asked us for our IDs, etc. you know, just as, as, as they do. And he went in front of me and he pulled out his ID and he was like, early forties. Like, and I was like, huh? Like, and I think like I was like 25 at the time. And I was like, early forties. Yeah. And, and you're talking about where the girls are. Oh, gosh. Oh, uh this. And I'm like, I'm like, bro, I I don't know, man. Do you know what I mean? I felt really uncomfortable. Because I was like, is that what you really want? Or are you still repeating a certain toxic behavior that allows you to live in a certain way that's callous, but also comfortable? So you don't really have to explore the discomfort of what is Mm it me to feel alone and to not be able to build the intimacy that you're looking for in your life and to actually be frustrated about that. And to actually, like, go on a date and say, look, I'm looking for intimacy. Like, if this isn't it, like, I don't want to be here. Rather than the, oh, I'm going to go for sex. Do you know the amount of guys that I know who've gone, like, yeah, I'm sex, 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 whatever. Yeah, whatever. And then to the girls, are like, I just miss you so much. Like, I just want that. And I'm, bro, like, you know, let's, <laughs> let's be real. We yeah. know we know the game. And this is the thing that I'm saying. is like, we know the game. Guys, we know the game. Fellas, like, we know the game. Do you know what I mean? Like, let's be honest. Let's actually be honest. Let's stop fronting with this whole toxic masculinity thing, whatever. Like we we're old enough. You know, when you're 19, cool. I mean, it's not cool, but like we get it. You're still learning life, whatever. But really, as we get older, like we know the game. So what is it that's still forcing us to keep this facade, even though it's not beneficial to us, even though we're at a stage of life where we've we should have outgrown it. You know, and if you look at someone like Future, how old is Future even? He's like forty one now. Yeah. Bro, man, like He's a lot older than Russell Wilson as well. Right? Exactly. (laughs) Russell Wilson's like early 30s. So I'm like, bro, Future, please, man. Like she belongs to the streets. No, you belong to the chiropractor. Sort out your back. (laughs) Sit down, bro. Like read a book on a Sunday morning. Like Mm. it's all right. You don't need to be at the strip club at four AM. You know, spend time with your grandma that type of stuff, like, it's okay. And I think, like, yeah, we don't get to see examples of that, you know? Like, think about, we get to see so much of the toxic examples. What do we see, especially in terms of, like, black men and older black men as well, how many examples of older black men do we get to see them just living ordinary lives, right, where they're taking care of their families or they're with their families, spending time with their grandparents, spreading time with their children, spending time with their aunties and their mother whatever it is like building those relationships we don't get to see it the only context we get to see black men in is when they're making money being materialistic or being sexualized and that doesn't get spoken about enough you know
1: sorry i went on some wild tangent (laughs) (laughs) man no 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 I, i loved it man i loved every second thank you so much for tuning in Please do stay tuned for more. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps the podcast. And follow me on Twitter. Feel free to shoot me any thoughts. See you next time.
2: Circle K is America's thirst stop. And yours. Especially when the weather gets... And you need to stay... Stay refreshed on the go with ice-cold Circle K favorites like freshly ground iced coffee, Froster, Polar Pop Cup, and more. And right now at Circle K, save on all 20-ounce Pepsi products. Three for $4.25. When life's go, 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 make us your first stop. Because Circle K is America's thirst stop. 15
0: minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what?